Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Science Fiction. This is the corner of the New Books Network where we get to talk about fictional science and scientific fiction and about basically anything today's science fiction writers cook up. I'm Rob Wolf, and today I bring you the In the Beginning Was the Word edition of the show. All books are inherently on some level about language, but some are more ostentatious about that fact than others. My guest today is Karen Tidbeck, whose novel Amatka makes quite literal the power of language to create a world. Amatka was shortlisted for the Compton Crook and Locus Awards. Although it was published in Sweden in 2012, it wasn't until 2017 when the book made its debut in English. A reviewer on NPR called it a warped and chilling portrait of post-truth reality, while a Chicago Tribune reviewer called it disturbing and provocative. And since I always love to talk about things that are warped and provocative, I am delighted to have Karen Tidbeck on the line with me from her home in Malmö, Sweden. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. How are things in Malmö? Things are great. We're having lovely September weather, and I have been working on a new novel this morning. That's great. Well, I hope it's okay if we switch gears and talk about your last book, Amatka. Sure. So the setting of Amatka is a place, and I was never quite sure if it was a planet or perhaps Earth in the future, and maybe we could even talk about that. But let's just start with what we know, which is that it's a place that was settled by pioneers, and they built five colonies, and only four of which still exist at the outset of the story. And the book's main character Her name is Vanya, and she is arriving in the colony of Amatka, from which your book takes its title. And she's on a interesting sort of capitalistic, bureaucratic mission to assess the residents' need for hygiene products. And that seems like a particularly unexpected mission, I think, given how minimal the comforts in Amatka are. So I thought maybe we could start by your giving a sense of what life is like for the colonists who live in Amatka. It's, um, it's not a cheerful life. It's, they live with li- limited resources, so you have to be careful about everything. You can say that, in, in a sense, it's a model for how we should live, given that our resources are also limited. Everything is mended, saved, and reused. Even dead bodies are recycled. Um, so... That's the material side of things, but it's also a very oppressive society because language has enormous power and you have to be extremely careful about what you say, what you do, and so, and in a sense even what you think because upsetting the order of things can literally mean the end of the world. Also, you're always cold. Well, let's go into that a little more when you say you can literally bring about the end of the world depending on what words you use and how you think. Very specifically, you make that very concrete 
because your characters and in their world, they constantly need to label everything. Mm -hmm. So for instance, a pencil has to be labeled a pencil. A toothbrush has to literally have the words toothbrush on it. And I thought maybe you could give our listeners a sense of what the consequences of not following through with that are by talking about what happens to Vanya's suitcase. She's got this battered old secondhand suitcase that she brings her clothes to a matka in. Uh, but what happens when the label wears off that suitcase? Most things in in this place are made from sort of gloop that you verbally program into its shape. And you have to keep reminding the thing of what it is. Um, that is that is to say to label it. If you don't, or if labels wear off, or if the writing comes off, um, they return to their original state, which is this gloop. So where did this notion come from for you, this idea that there is a place where there is this kind of raw material that everyone calls gloop, that by labeling it, it takes on the form of the thing described by the label? Well, it's a consequence of um, the thought experience uh, experiment that I started out with, which is what would happen if we were in a world where matter is literally ruled by language. And I think that came from my fascination with the Sapir-Whorf theory uh, that stipulates, uh, well, that plays with the idea that language literally rules our reality and how we experience reality. And, and Sapir and Worf were two, uh, what were they, linguists or philosophers? You know what? I cannot remember at this very, this very point. I would have to look that up. But that's okay, but they're two people. They're two people, yes, the two people. And I remember being very fascinated with the idea. Um, and this is back in 2006 or something that I started playing around with this idea. So it's been a while. But the, the, experiments, uh, the experiment itself was to pretty much place people in a reality where words controlled matter. And that comes from the Sapir-Whorf theory and also my, my experiments with dreams. Because dreams are, I mean, dreams are stories set into action. And uh, have you ever done lucid dreaming? I've tried to do lucid dreaming. That's where you plan out or try to control, solve a problem in your dream or try to control the narrative in a dream. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so when I've done lucid dreaming, I've sort of spoken what I think should happen. And it's most of the time it's happened. Um, so I, I love that idea about controlling reality through language. And I wonder what would happen if I actually created such an environment and put people there. So you're saying in your dreams you'll articulate oh, the table will turn into an elephant and then it has done so in your dream? Yeah, probably a table-sized elephant. I see, within limits. <laughs> so that creates a very tenuous existence for the residents of this place in the four colonies, because these rules apply to all the colonies, although we really are only spending time in Amatka. Mm -hmm. When Vanya's suitcase disappears, she is absolutely terrified, and she runs from the room, and it seems as if it's the biggest crime she could have committed. She apologizes to her roommates. There's a crew that has to come and clean things up. 
even her bed somehow has disappeared in the process. I guess maybe the gloop has touched it and the bed has disappeared. It's understandable that that would be terrifying to see the world and solid objects disappear. And I wonder, ultimately, is this a limited resource? I mean, one would think that, oh, my bed disappeared. Let me just get more gloop and I'll make another bed. But there seems to be a scarcity here that the world is shrinking around them. Well, gloop is actually an endless resource. Um, it's, um, and I mentioned this in the book, it's no big secret. It's pumped up out of the ground uh, in one of the factory cities. What is a finite resource is the stuff that they brought with them from the old world. Um, in the book, there's stuff like fine paper, for example, which is paper that won't dissolve after a certain amount of time. And there's um, there's some machinery. I think there's even a car somewhere that comes from the old world and that will not dissolve. And cement too. There's a reference to cement, oh, yeah. a building made with cement, and that doesn't need to be labeled either. So these things don't need to be labeled. They're they're made of a different material. Exactly because they brought a bunch of cement. And so. You never fully explain, and maybe it's meant to be more a metaphor than reals, and maybe you don't want to explain, But, and maybe I'm being too literal, but what is this gloop? Why are there some things that are solid and don't dissolve, and why do some things require labels? What are, what are we, the reader, to make of that? That is entirely up to the reader. I mean, I know what I intended with the story, but as far as I'm concerned, once a story leaves my hands, it belongs to the reader. So, I mean, I can answer questions and I can tell you my own theories about why I wrote things I wrote, but ultimately it's um, the story happens in the reader's head. So it's less important what I intended and more important what the reader takes away from it. Well, I guess I could say what I took away or one of the things I took away, I guess, ties into... Uh, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which I wasn't familiar with until you mentioned it, and then I, since while we were speaking, Googled it, and so I'll put a link to it in the show notes, to the at least the Wikipedia page explaining it. It is one of the takeaways I took without knowing that there was a, a name necessarily for it, which is that the world in which we live today, our our thinking is in fact constrained by the language we use, which is why you know, when they speak about, and I don't even know if this is entirely true, but that in certain languages, uh, indigenous languages in the north, there are multiple words for snow. So they see snow differently because you have more words for it. You can see more subtlety in it, whereas, you know, in English, there are really not that many words for it. So the world looks different. Snow probably looks different to us. And that's kind of a simplistic example. It's probably more impactful when we have words to describe ideas about freedom and rights mm -hmm. and those sorts of things. But that does seem to be what you were touching on. And then the notion that things, some things don't necessarily need words to describe them, I was thinking might be the things that are universal. Like maybe there really are things that we all share and we don't need language for. Like you look up at the sky and it's, and we all agree what the sky is or something. There's some fundamental things that changing the word for it won't change our sense that it's above us it's there's no stop you know it's it's an endless expanse above us some fundamental principles some fundamental characteristics anyway that was that was my takeaway i don't know if there's anything you want to share mm. about 
what you have in the back of your mind without prejudicing other potential readers. No, I was thinking about what you said about the Sophia Wharf hypothesis and about you know how language forms our thinking depending depending on culture. There have been a lot of studies on this, and the Sophia Wharf hypothesis has been questioned a lot of times. So I wouldn't take that for truth. I also thought when you said many names of snow, we have a lot of names of snow because we have a lot of different kinds of snow here. But I think it's it's hard to tell how language really forms someone's view of reality. I mean, are there concepts that we that we experience but that we can't express right now in English or Swedish, for example? I'm sure there are. Um, there are some. I mean, we import words from other languages to describe sensations that we previously weren't aware of. My, I think my, and this is a tangent, but my favorite word is probably fremdscham, which is a German word to describe secondhand shame, as in the embarrassment that you feel when you watch someone else in dire straits. Like when you're watching, um, uh, say you're watching Monty Python, that's a lot of fremdscham. I feel that all the time. That's why I can't do practical jokes on people because I'm just, I get upset for their uh -huh. discomfort. Yeah, there you go. I never had a word for it. No, you do. But it's interesting because the point, I did feel it without actually necessarily having a word for it. I just say, oh, I'm embarrassed. But but that's a more precise way to explain the kind of embarrassment mm. that I'm feeling. And, and German has so many great words. They have They have an absolute ocean of fantastic words to put to just put a label on things that we experience that, that, that are very difficult to describe otherwise. Well, it's very clear that these rules are something that are indoctrinated very young in the people who live in this place where the four colonies are, because kids they part of their play is to label things and there's something called the the marking song yeah which basically indoctrinates them and that seems to hint at the way all people in some form or another as they're raised are imbued with you know a certain outlook on the world and yet it doesn't have to be foreordained that they can't separate from that and they can't think differently because that's what happens to Vanya. She, when she's in Amatka, starts to get hints that maybe there is a different way to live and it comes to her through a book of poems that she encounters in the library. Uh, the poems are by a woman named Anna and they convey to her a sense that maybe there is a freer life outside of town, outside of these constraints. And there are some hints and other characters who are suggesting this, and she starts wandering beyond the borders of the city. And I found it really interesting that words are both constraining in this world, words by having to label things, sharply define things, and yet the poetry and this poet is able to use language to inspire a much looser, freer way of thinking. And I wonder if you could talk about that theme and your use of poetry in the book and your relationship to poetry. Absolutely. Poetry is, to me, the it's, it's a very concentrated way of expressing ideas. And it's a fantastic way to express ideas and, and sensations in a very compact form. 
you have to strip everything away. You can't spend time on exposition or dialogue or anything like that. You have to compress it into its barest, smallest format. Or at least that's what my poetry is like and the poetry I, I like to read. Uh, so it's it's a fantastic challenge to write. And um, Amatka actually started out as a poetry collection. Um, I it's it's a long process in which I, I started out right I started out with writing down my dreams and I realized that this was so weird um, that I had to find a format to accurately convey these images without overwhelming the reader. I wanted the reader to come along, not to be crushed by the weight. So I found that poetry was a really good tool for it. Um, it forced me to concentrate my thoughts, to concentrate these images into very short lines. So I'm, I'm not a huge poetry reader, but I do believe in the power of poetry to change the world because it's something that's it's short, um, it's something that you can remember, it's something that you can recite, and it, it can become a mantra, like it does in Namatka, where poetry is both tool of the oppressors, but also a tool for revolution. I understand better your reference and the acknowledgments to the fact that the book took a very long time to write. So you're saying it started as a book of poetry. I imagine that that was quite involved then to turn it from poems into narrative and developed characters and a plot and a story arc? Yeah, there were so many challenges. I started out with this poetry collection and I sent it into various publishers and I couldn't really get anyone interested. So I shelved it for a while and then a section of this poetry collection sort of stuck with me and I started writing scenes based on those poems and eventually a protagonist presented herself I don't really plot things out I sort of just write randomly and see what happens so Vanya showed up and um, I let her explore this world I gave her a backstory I gave her some motivations and other people that she wanted to interact with sort of popped up along the way um, so there were a lot of challenges just finding the story based on these poems and then developing it and I had never written a novel before so I didn't really know how to go about it and I went about it in an incredibly ass backwards way uh, so I wrote it not from beginning to end but I wrote it a little bit here a little bit there I shuffled the bits around um, but eventually I ended up with a narrative but it took me about six years wow yeah, I'm not, I'm not a fast writer. <laughs> well, it sounds like your writing follows the template of life in Amatka, where the words create the reality. And, and I mean that in the sense that you say you don't use an outline, you're sort of just going along and the world is being shaped as you're writing, through your writing it's being shaped, which I suppose maybe is the case for all of us who write, but there's something very sort of liberating and freeform about the method that you've described. I very much write on instinct. And I, I teach this a lot as well. I teach creative writing. And one of the things that I do to my students the most is I force them to do automatic writing. 
and then build stories based on that. So basically not try to be smart, not try to plot things out um, ahead of time, but just write and see where the pen takes you. What's the significance of the name Amatka towards the end of the book? And I don't think this is revealing any deep secrets, but we learned that the colony, this particular colony of the four surviving colonies was originally called Frostville. And then the ruling committee, the authoritarian committee that makes decisions, changed it to Amatka. And I was thinking, well, Frostville is quite suitable to a place that's as cold as Amatka is, and it would make more sense to keep Frost in the name. So why did they change it? And does Amatka have some significance in perhaps Swedish culture or mm-hmm. is it just completely made up? Well, they could they had to change the name because no words are allowed to be homonyms, synonyms or metaphors. And there's a reason here why one of the one of the cities disappeared. So they they changed all city names to randomized words. So Amatka is just it's just a string of letters that I came up with that I thought sounded nice. It's um it's 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 completely random. I've since then learned that Matka means mother in Polish, but that's about it. Have you heard from any readers who've named their babies Amatka now? <laughs> No, no, but I suppose that would be like one of the things I should have on my bucket list. Exactly. Yeah. That's a fascinating point that you can't have metaphors in a name because that would confuse the meaning or homonyms that might confuse what the object should be. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That, by the way, was one of the biggest challenges of the book when I, well, first when I wrote it in Swedish was that I decided that because the language that the people speak in Amatka and in the entire colonies, it has been cleansed of homonyms, synonyms and metaphors, even the names. Um, as, as in even people's names, there is a list of of um, names you're allowed to name your children. Uh, so that was a challenge to actually go through the whole book and perch um, everything that wasn't straight prose from it. And I had to do the same when I translated it. Well, there are some countries in Europe, I know, that do have approved names, although clearly for different reasons, not because people are going to turn into the objects by, for which they're described, but... Oh, like Iceland? Uh, yeah, and I think I think France used to have something like that. There's a list of approved names. Right. We only have... I know in Sweden, the, the um, um, you're not allowed to name your kid names that, can, that means they're subjected to bullying or harassment, something like that. That's such a subjective situation, though. I mean, you, you know, in one community, you might they might find a name somehow disturbing and... It might inspire bullying, and in another, not. Yeah, this is very true. I think I, I saw a list of these of names that hadn't been approved, and it was stuff like gravel and God and a string of random letters that were supposed to be pronounced Peter or something like that. Fascinating. So, <laughs> your book is less a thought experiment than it looks on the surface. Maybe, yes. Is it, in fact, a planet? Is it? A dreamscape? Is it Earth in the past, present, future? Does it matter? No. 
but it's interesting to talk about. It is, but I um, and I <clears throat> I've been debating with myself whether I should actually mention what it is, but I think I don't want to spoil the reader's experience because where they place it mentally is is important to their experience. Uh, what I can say is that I I have not explicitly mentioned that it's either uh, a planet or at any point in the Earth's history. Let's talk about the translation process. That is also obviously all about language. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the journey to getting it translated. It was published in 2012 in Sweden, and then it was published in English five years later. Maybe it was published in some other languages along the way? Uh, no, it was um, published in Swedish and then English. And I know it was published almost simulta simultaneously in Spanish because we sent the, uh, the PDF to the Spanish publisher. They were interested. Was it something you were hoping and pushing for all those years? Did it just happen out of the blue that a American publisher said they wanted to publish it in English? It was when it was published in Swedish, I fairly quickly realized that my Swedish publisher wasn't going to try to market it abroad. So I decided to do it on my own out of desperation because I really wanted it to have a wider readership. And I wanted to make it abroad because the um, it's very difficult to actually live as a writer in Sweden. It's just you you don't make you don't make any money here, and you have very very few readers, unless you write crime or you know rom coms like the girl with the dragon tattoo that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. So I decided to translate it on my own, and by this time I already had an American publisher who helped me get an agent. And I, when I was sort of done, I sent the manuscript to my agent. Uh, we sent it to a consultant who helped me with uh, the translation process because at this point, this was my first big translation I did that I had ever done from Swedish to English, so I needed some help. And when that was done, uh, my agent sold that and Jagannath to Vintage Books. What was the translation process like for you revisiting your words and having to transform them into another language? Were there some ideas that you couldn't feel you could get across? And I know for myself, when I've written something and I look at it later, I always can think of a better way to say it. And I wonder if translation gives you an opportunity to say, hey, maybe in English, I'll rephrase that idea or change the way I describe this room, because this is a better way to do it. Well, translation is never an exact process. You don't translate word for word. You have to sort of, you have to reimagine uh, the scene or the sentence in a way that works for another language. Um, so it was, it was a pain in the ass, and I don't want to do it again because the language in Swedish was very complicated. So. Amatka was, it, it was very difficult to translate, but it was also easier to translate than some of my short stories because it doesn't have any obvious cultural references to concepts that are familiar in, in Swedish. Uh, what was difficult was small words in English that are actually synonyms or metaphors uh, and that aren't in Swedish. 
take a word like a uh, watch, like a wristwatch. It's, I mean, it's not only a clock, it also means to watch something, which was very difficult to, to do in English. In, in Swedish, we use the word clock for everything, even for pocket watches. So there were tiny words like that that kept tripping me up all the time. And so that's why you call them, I think you call them wrist clocks yeah. in the English translation. Yeah, because you can't use the word watch when it already means something else. Very thoughtful. I mean, I, I, I saw wrist clock and I thought, oh, I, that just gives a sense that it's a different place. There's a different, and, and here you are making it, tying it into the overarching theme, which went over my head, I admit. <laughs> I'm clever like that. Yes, you are. <laughs> and how has the book's reception uh, been in different countries? I saw on your website that so far it's been translated into Spanish, Hungarian, French, and Portuguese. Mm -hmm. And it's coming out in Italian uh, later this month. Fantastic. So is have you gotten a sense of any differences in terms of how it's been received that might illuminate something about the cultural window through which readers of different countries are perceiving the story? Yeah, it's been interesting. I haven't really heard anything about the Hungarian and Portuguese reception so far. Um, but I've, um, I went to Spain and talked about the book there. And I went to France and did the same. And um, the Spanish readership and the Spanish reviewers are very interested in talking about um, sort of the, uh, the common themes that Swedish and Spanish fiction has like Swedes also have a huge thing for magical realism for example so they're interested in talking about fantastic fiction uh, about Amatka as a part of the fantastic fiction genre in, in in Scandinavia so a lot of genre talk there and when I went to France everyone wanted to talk about feminism which was interesting many people I met there talked about Amatka as a feminist manifesto and wanted me to make comments on f feminism in Sweden and stuff like that, which I found really interesting. And the it when I sort of pressed them for answers, it turned out that they thought it was feminist because the protagonist is a woman, and because she has a relationship with another woman. Um, American readers and reviewers have so far wanted to talk a lot about what it's like to be Swedish. And uh, the uh, the role of Swedish fiction in uh, in the Anglophone world. So I've been asked a lot of questions about how my fiction fits in with um, with the Swedish noir genre and stuff like that. So it's it's different from country to country, which is very interesting. Do you think Amatka has uh, a distinct Swedish? sensibility in some way i mean my gut reaction is that well it's in a cold place and there's something kind of bare bones about the the way they live in amatka and i can imagine that that certainly in some parts of sweden is truly the way people live or the values somehow reflects or is connected to values some people might have but is there anything else and is that even true what i'm thinking well i think it's i think people think of it as more swedish than it actually is but then again i'm swedish and i come from a swedish culture and background so it's probably extremely swedish um i think one of the things that i thought about when i wrote it was the aesthetic of the 1970s socialist ideal 
I was brought up by uh, socialists, and they and their friends had these this ideal that looked eastward, um, not at um, oppressive communism as we know it, but as the, you could say democratic socialism. And they, in turn, had acquaintances that were much more hardline. And I was thinking about what it would be like if these hardline socialists had somehow found a portal to another world back in the 70s. And what would they do with it? What kind of society would they create from it? So I think a Swedish reader might smell that 1960s, 1970s um, Swedish socialist ideals in it. I don't know how much the um, um, a foreign reader might pick up from it. And there's also something about my prose as well, which I'm aware of. Um, Swedish fiction, um, Swedish magical realism and Swedish literary fiction as well, has a, there's a sort of tradition of not explaining everything to the reader. And I know that this has tripped some um, foreign readers up sometimes is that I don't explain everything. I ex maybe explain it piecemeal, but some things are just left there for the reader to wonder about. And um, it's I do that throughout all my fiction. And I have come to realize that that might be a fairly Swedish thing to do. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed learning more about Amatka and about you, and I, I really appreciate that you've taken the time out of your afternoon to chat. Thank you for having me. It was great. I've been talking with Karin Tidbeck about Amatka, which is published in English by Vintage Books. Please subscribe to New Books in Science Fiction to hear interviews of your favorite science fiction authors. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts if you haven't already done so. It helps people like yourself who love science fiction find us. I am Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe, and I thank you very, very much for listening.